Maybe Isabella knows that you've got new friends now. In fact, I'll bet she doesn't come around as much anymore. Maybe. What about in the closet? Okay. Anybody in here? Looks pretty empty to me. <gasps> Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton stuffing my face with chocolate. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the worst, the in-between, I'm not sure. We're here this week to talk about the episode Imaginary Friend from Season 5 of The Next Generation as we continue on with our classic episode reviews. Tyler, Tyler, if you are actually there and not just my imaginary yeah. friend, why are we talking <laughs> about this episode? <laughs> Wait, I was going to start off the episode asking you why we're talking about this episode, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've had a lot of fun, like tackling like a lot of like really good, really strong Star Trek episodes. But you know, it, it's like, well, what can we really do? But like praise why those episodes work on a storytelling level, why they work on a character level, and all that. But so much of Star Trek, just because of the volume that was being produced, it, it just isn't quite up to the same sort of standards that would land you in like a top ten list uh, or, or even like a top one hundred list. And for me, imaginary friend. It's just an episode that everybody knows, everybody kind of mm -hmm. remembers. It's it just, it, even like the um, actress who plays uh, Isabella, um, I, I went and did my like um, half-assed internet research um, and uh, like that actress went on to go uh, like be in like Third Rock from the Sun as like uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's uh, girlfriend throughout it. Do you remember the character of August? I do, yeah. But she was just like kind of like a, a very um, like iconic looking kind of like alien as well. And so it just kind of sticks in your brain. And of course, I've always been making like references to um, Isabella throw throwing clay at Alexander's head. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an image that stuck with me. I, I know it's an episode my sister and I watched many times uh, growing up. So to me, it, it, it's kind of an iconic episode, but it's also not a very good episode um, just in terms of like storytelling. And so I think it would just be fun for us to kind of like tackle what, what like, look, there, there's terrible episodes of Star Trek. Um, this one's not a terrible one. It just doesn't nope. work, you know? And, and, and so that's why I'm kind of intrigued by this. Well, it's also the type of Star Trek episode we don't get anymore. Because of the way that current Star Trek is made, where it's, you know, like 10 episode seasons, the writers are not under the crunch they used to be. So you don't have that kind of like spark of madness that can creep into a writer's room <laughs> the sure. same way now. And so like when I watch Imaginary Friend, what I find the most interesting about it, and there, there are actually a number of things that I noted that I thought would be fun to talk about on this episode, but like it doesn't often feel like a TNG episode. It often feels <laughs> like kind of like... I don't know, some vapors have gotten into that writer's room and they've kind of tiptoed into some terrain that feels a little outside of what they should really be doing on the show. 
And I kind of appreciate those episodes because, you know, whether you're talking about the original series or Next Gen or DS9 or Voyager, even Enterprise a little bit, um, those types of episodes pop up where you have like a 26-episode season or a 22-episode season. It's just not a thing anymore. Like the shows feel too cohesive. I almost miss these days of bizarro outings like this. Well, that's just, okay. So I don't think this is a particularly like great episode of Star Trek, but this wasn't grueling to sit through. Um, it nope. was kind of like funny at times and also just kind of like identifying what works and what doesn't work from kind of a storytelling and a character level, especially how it just start stands in such stark contrast to what kind of the mantra was going forward in the writer's room with uh, Star Trek from the time Michael Piller kind of took over the reins. And instead of having kind of a uh, guest star of the week in which the story was centered around, you would zoom in on one of the main characters and you'd be telling like a journey for them. And, and you'd always have to walk away and ask yourself, like, what did the character learn in this episode? Um, what was their journey in this episode? Um, for here, like th that doesn't really um, apply to any of the main characters in Imaginary <laughs> Friend. It actually reminds me a little bit of the Thaw, the Voyager episode, not in terms of being that similar a story or anything, but when you watch the Thaw, you're like, okay, whose episode is this? Is this Harry Kim's episode? And it just bounces around throughout the course of the show. And, you know, here you obviously have Clara is, I guess, the lead character of the episode, but which of our regulars is the primary lead of the show? I mean, Deanna Troy is incredibly important, but when you get to the end of solving the problem, it's Picard stepping in to deal with all that sort of thing, the way Janeway does in The Thaw. So it feels like a very confused episode, which is perhaps not a surprise when you have like six writing credits on it. Well, I, I'm going to jump in and because when I left this one, I just kind of thought and I was like, okay, so whose episode is it? it? It clearly is not any of the main characters. So that leaves you with Clara, right? Um, or maybe yeah. her father, Ensign Sutter. And then I actually thought about it. Was like, <laughs> what, what, like, what were their journeys? Like Ensign Sutter, did he even really learn how to become a better father when he was going around asking people without children for parental advice? Like, um <laughs> You know, like he's like, the most like feckless guy. Like he is just, I mean, clueless dad is a is a is a thing. <laughs> so but, but you know, and, and very common in TV. But this guy, I I couldn't really. They don't talk about like any sort of like resolution with where Clara's at or anything in the father. Um, I don't know. Are they still going to keep on moving on? Like, is this a, impacting this kid's ability to grow? Like, I don't know. Well, it, okay, so like. He, he's asking LaForge for parenting advice. He's asking <laughs> Troy for parenting advice. It's going to be decades until either of them become parents. But guess what? You have two main characters. You have both uh, Dr. Crusher as well as Lieutenant Worf, who are parents. Um, we, we have, yeah. like, like Crusher never chimes in on parenting. She's more obsessed with Agawa's love life. Um, <laughs> you know? You mean where Agawa suddenly turns into, like, a giggling, like, 16-year-old? She's like, I can't go to Ryza. I hear it's a little too kinky there. And then, like, Crusher's like, there, there's a river cruise on, like, a different planet. Like, a like a, and, like, I'm like, okay. Uh, what did she call it? Like, iridescent shores? And I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Um, she like Crusher seems like kind of the obvious pick for like if this is going to be an episode an episode about children or parenting, and I don't really think this is an episode about um parenting, but mm. like Sutter never goes to her. Uh, we all know Worf is like a bad parent. I think this is like the one nod that we've ever seen from Worf's character of him 
trying to empathize with children where he gives kind of like a half Ron DeSantis-esque sort of smile when he encounters Clara and Isabella in kind of the restricted area and says, ah, just go back to your quarters. I won't say anything, you know. Um, we don't even see Worf and, and Alexander interact in this episode, you know. So, like, yeah, it's strange. It's and also we go to the arboretum like five times, and Keiko is never in there once, despite her <laughs> being mentioned. You know, uh, this episode's funny. Like, that, that's what I'll say. So, so Cam, um, I I ultimately had to nix like Ensign Sutter's. You know, this is not his journey. I kept asking myself, well, what is the journey? You get to the very end of the episode, and you have Isabella pop in one more time to say to Clara, like, oh, hey, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It'd, you're my first friend. It'd be great if you come back to the nebula once again. Um, that's when I realized this is not Clara's story. Like, what did Clara learn from the start of the episode to the end of the episode? Like, she doesn't really become friends with anybody. Um, in fact, she, like, um, kind of ostracizes, uh, well, she's ostracized because of Isabella. So it, it's like, yep. it's not really her journey. This was the journey of an alien life form that's like went like passed through the brain of a child and started perceiving everything around her from a child's perspective so this is actually the journey of isabella this is isabella's story essentially <laughs> and this is such a weird thing for like writers to structure an entire story about the journey of a child alien character yeah, and it's interesting when you read the behind the scenes on this one that they had a very difficult time cracking the story on this one. And it was originally pitched more as an E.T. like story about like a kind of like inspirational, warm bonding between, you know, Clara and Isabella. And it wasn't until they passed it around trying to figure it out that Brandon Braga got his hands on it and was like, I think we need to take it in a darker direction. Which is where, you know, the red eyes and the uh, more, like, vengeful <laughs> Isabella stuff came from. And I have to imagine, Brandon Bragg is a huge horror guy, so he's probably thinking of, like, the Shining Twins or the Omen and Damien and things like that. And it feels like kind of this, like, congealed mass of ideas and influences and directions all kind of, like, happening. Because, yeah, you pointed out there that it is the journey of Isabella, who is one big jerk of an alien. Uh, the second this alien really shows up, it's just like, I don't like anyone, and I just want to cause problems. And I'm like, okay, this story would make more sense to me if you're going to focus on her journey or its journey, if it was more of an E.T. story, in as opposed to this, where it's like kind of this mean-spirited character who at the very end is like, I'm sorry, <laughs> be my friend. No, but you bring up a, a good point because it's not as if the episode takes place from Isabella's point of view. Like, this entire episode is centered around Clara's point of view. But it ultimately is about Isabella's journey because Isabella starts in one place, um, learns more about how things function, uh, comes to an epiphany because of Picard, who they were giving Patrick Stewart really bad material to work with here. <laughs> but what an actor. If, if, if I'm engaged watching this guy, like, talk about, like, Oh, well, guess what? We like to protect our young here in this society. And I'm just like, okay, then. But Isabella ultimately learns something by the end. So, so she actually has a character arc. But the thing is, everything's from Clara's point of view. And, and Clara has no character arc here. So it, it's just it's just such a jumbled mess of an episode, which you don't usually, even if an episode isn't great on Next Generation, uh, you know, from like seasons, you know, three to seven, 
at least like the the story structure actually kind of makes sense. And and this one, like you said, it, it passed through so many hands. I think that's why we ended up with kind of like a messy episode like this. I made a note with that Patrick Stewart scene. I just wrote down greatest scene of Patrick Stewart's career question mark. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I don't know. But it was it was just kind of like a it also, he was, like, absent from so much of this episode, but just, this is when, like, you know he can come in as the pinch hitter and just kind of, yeah. like, do what he does best. I don't know what happened in Star Trek Picard, but uh, Star Trek Next Generation, this is Patrick Stewart on his A-game here. And the thing is, also, the B story of this one, about the strands and whatever, may be the most boring TNG uh, B story <laughs> of all time. The shields are making the ship shake very gently. <laughs> <laughs> it is unbelievable how much of it is just them cutting to the bridge and you have all these expensive actors basically staring at nothing and saying like, well, uh, and then giving techno babble and then you just cut away from them. Like there's no real rising drama. It's just like, yeah, well, it's, that didn't work. What next? <laughs> and it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And the fact that they basically at the end are like, well, any other ideas? And it just cuts to Patrick Stewart. <laughs> facing clara i'm like oh my god like they really filled in some gaps there in defense of this which was not a great b story i i, I agree i kind of miss the time in star trek where you didn't necessarily have to have a ton of tension you know life and death sort of circumstances in every single episode you know like where you yeah. could just kind of have kind of the chill kind of like easygoing hangout factor and things only really come to a head in like the last six minutes of, of what's going on. Although, you know, um, <laughs> watching Isabella shoot laser beams at Troy, <laughs> making her slam into <laughs> the closet. Like that was pretty amusing, though. Oh, that was great. Here's a question for you. Why didn't they make, um, you know, the father, Sutter, a more like key character in solving the problem? That would have actually made a lot of sense in terms of what you're trying to do with his being, I think? sort of a family story well like i'm thinking about it from like a mechanical perspective you know it like i mean the obvious like answer is because you've got patrick stewart you're paying him a paycheck let's give him a great speech you know um but it, it's like like it's a good question like there could have been even just some sort of like cursory nod to Sutter, like having some sort of realization about like how to get in touch with Isabella through his own experience being a parent and, and trying to explain that, but then you're taking screen time away from Patrick Stewart, you know, and so it's just kind of like, I, like like I can understand why the writers would just lean on like a known quantity, which is like Stewart versus you know kind of like '90s guy who you, you know that we got here. Um, although I really did feel bad for Sutter when. You just got nothing but a look of contempt from Jordy when Isabella kind of trotted into main engineering, which she knew <laughs> she would was not supposed to be there. But this is, goes back to kind of like gr growing older, doing this podcast, and realizing like what a jerk Jordy really was uh, that I did not realize when I was watching this as a kid. Oh yeah, oh yeah, Jordy doesn't look great in this episode. I mean, they could have had a moment though where Sutter maybe realized something, passed it on to Jordy, and then you could still have Patrick Stewart giving his like um. C grade level speech at the end to Clara and the alien. And I think that would work, but just to give that character like an acknowledgement that like, Hey, he's dealing with his daughter and this issue. Maybe he could contribute something. It's just so weird to introduce this guy who seems so stressed and doesn't know what to do with his daughter. And there's never a point where this guy has any sort of like epiphany about anything whatsoever. 
Well, it's very clear that they uh, shuffled him off the ship uh, immediately after this adventure because he's never seen again. Exactly, yes. I mean, and the fact is he's like, well, you know, it's from moving around all the time that uh, she's having these issues, and uh, I guess they kept on moving, and I would love to know whatever happened to the Sutter family. Uh, It's fascinating to me. Did Clara keep her promise and go back to visit Isabella in the Nebula, Cam? It's been 30 years. Like, uh, what what do you think? Is 40-year-old Clara over there right now? Uh, I wouldn't rule out a reunion because it did make me think a lot, a lot about Deborah the Nebula. Yeah, I got from that. From season one, Strange New Worlds. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, was this like kind of the, the payoff? Like did some writer on Strange New Worlds <laughs> watch Imaginary Friend and suddenly go, wait a second, wait a second. I got the answer as to how to deal with Mabenga's daughter. <laughs> It's very yes, Cam. I, you're right. This was inspiration for uh, the uh, the weakest episode yet of Strange New Worlds. Um, I want to point out some hypocrisy here. Uh, w- what is the age difference between like Clara and Wesley? And you <laughs> see how much like Wesley just has full reign everywhere aboard the ship, whether it's uh, hitting up cargo bays, main engineering, the bridge, mm-hmm. uh, ten forward. Um, he can, Wesley can go to ten forward unaccompanied, you know. But uh, Clara tries to do it. Ooh. Like, I kind of feel like where Isabella's coming from. Like, uh, you know, don't know how much knowledge she had of uh, Wesley prior to this. But uh, I don't know. I, it really more kind of suited the purpose of the show. Although I, I totally understand. Like, there, there's a big difference between, like, say, an acting ensign boy genius versus just a regular old, like, um, elementary school kid. Well, it's like if they don't want kids in engineering which to me sounds entirely reasonable yes <laughs> what kind of safeguards are there yeah. <laughs> in entering engineering like it seems like a very vital uh, part of the ship that you don't want people getting into like you could have a lot of enemies that could apparently just walk right on in uh they make it so simple that like a whatever seven-year-old child or eight-year-old or however old she is can just like stroll on through and it is no problem and it's not like when she walks in Jordy's like Get that kid out. Get that kid out. It's just like, oh, Sutter, your daughter's here. Oh, geez. Harumph. How, how does any civilian get past or get, get outside of the saucer section, though? Like, that doesn't really quite make sense to me. You know, like, if you hit the turbo if if Clara walks into the turbo lift and says, main engineering, please, the computer's like, yeah. okay. Like, like, that makes no sense to me. Well, shouldn't there at the very least be kind of like a transporter O'Brien-like type? Who's there guarding, like, the door of engineering? Like, uh, yes, you have access. Real. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> okay, that could just be replaced by, like, a shield that recognizes if you're wearing a combat or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone needs a job in the uh, sure. Federation. <laughs> yeah, that's why O'Brien just kind of stood there all day long. How long were O'Brien's shifts in the tra- transporter room, do you think? <sighs> do you think they do eight-hour shifts there? Yeah. Well, no, no, wait. How, how did... um? <laughs> Captain Jellico, uh do it because remember he wanted to shuffle all the shifts around. So I think, um, I think didn't Jellico have like four shifts a day, and then Picard had like three shifts a day. Is, am I getting things mixed up, or does that sound uh, at least I'm I'm kind of on the right track there? I think that sounds right. Yeah. So does that mean Jellico's running six hour shifts and Picard's running eight hour? That's what I I think. So I I think yeah. So by season six, you know. Um, O'Brien would have been on Deep Space Nine working at where they had 26-hour days because you're in the uh, Bajoran system there. Right. But yeah, it, it makes sense that uh, Picard would have been having like O'Brien just stand there 
um, knees wobbling inside the transporter room three, um, eight hours a day. That's one thing I really like about TNG is that they actually kind of discussed or noted that there was like shifts and they, they made it feel like a real job. Whereas when I look at like DS9 or Voyager, they were never that uh, focused on making it seem like there were other shifts or like Enterprise. Like, I don't know. Are there other shifts on those shows? Um, I just kind of get the sense that like Odo's just hanging out all day long, goes into his bucket for eight hours, and then he's on his on the job again, like uh, for I guess in in that situation, um, doing them at rough eighteen hours. Uh, he, he would do like eighteen hours straight uh, work. Like that's what my imagination is for Odo. What do you think on Voyager? Do you think they had like the same shift system as uh, Next Generation? I think she totally uh, went with the Jellico system, you know, get everybody on uh, six mm. hours at a time, do a constant rotation. Uh, yeah. Um, what do you think makes more sense? Six hours or eight hours every day? I mean, I'm used to eight just from my own life, but six hours would be nice. That'd be much nicer. Well, they say that like in the Nordic countries, it's usually like five to six hour work days. Because the other thing they do is like uh, people's productivity, like, after about five hours it just falls off a cliff anyway and you're not mm. really even getting that much done anyway so i really think jellico is onto something i i, I you know um there I, i'm so glad that there has been kind of like uh more appreciation for jellico <laughs> over the years like yeah he wasn't really wrong about anything like he was gruff but just because you're gruff doesn't mean you're wrong about something no he just didn't have that sort of it's funny because i don't think of picard as like a warm character but, like, he has an ability to interact with people in a way that feels very positive and affirming. And Jellico doesn't have that. He's just, like, <laughs> he's a little uh, stern. He's a little, uh, you know, joyless. And uh, he's just good at his job. But he's not necessarily the guy that... He's not the boss you're going to go out to drinks with at the end of the shift. And, and not all bosses need to be like that, you know? Like, Jellico, <laughs> like, like... Not all leaders need to be like, uh, hey, let's all like hang out or, you know, like a lot of leaders are very much like into the disciplinary mode. Like I'm sure like a lot of people are like, oh man, I don't want to screw up, you know, Jellicoe's here. But on the other hand, they're probably getting like these uh, easier shifts. You know, they're probably, I, I bet a lot of it is like, uh, hey, maybe I'm on call, you know, a little bit more often, mm. but I get to relax a little bit more. This is actually, I bet there's a lot of folks that probably prefer Jellicoe's uh, shift system versus what Picard was doing. I mean, I'm surprised the Enterprise people were so outraged by it. Uh, you'd think they'd be like, wait, they get to work two hours less a day? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're out of here, Picard. <laughs> Jellico, Jellico. <laughs> no kidding. O'Brien is just like, oh, that would have been so nice for my back if uh, I only had to work six hours, you know? Uh, do you think the reason we never saw Samantha Wildman on Voyager was because she was on a different shift? <laughs> Oh, that's, well, like, I okay, well, we saw it in, like, two episodes, and then she was pregnant, I think, in the second episode, or revealed to be have been pregnant by the second episode, and then after that, they're like, yeah, we're gonna switch you off of, like, kind of the main, like, uh, shift, where everything seems to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or do you think, like, they gave her, like, kind of like, oh, hey, uh, more time to hang out with your kid, like, instead of eight-hour shifts a day... Uh, five days a week why don't you do uh six hours you know four days a week you get more time to hang out with your kid and uh it's not just neelix taking care of <laughs> taking care of you <laughs> while you're not even on the bridge anymore they were like you better take more time off to spend with that kid because neelix my god my god 
<laughs> you don't want him raising her. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cam, like, like, ultimately, uh, what do you think you get out of imaginary friend? Just as kind of a, uh, an example of like Star Trek going a little bit out of its like comfort zone or just a little bit off the wall. Like what would be kind of a comparable episode in which it's not necessarily like, um, terrible, but it's uh. not really working within the parameters that make Star Trek so great. Hmm. Do you have an episode in mind? I'm just like brainstorming while I try to think of something. Is there any episodes that like to you jump out as like kind of those oddities? Well, okay. So like, I I I can't go back to like what you see with like um. Hey, let's get like a guest star to be the centerpiece of a single episode. But like, what are more of the episodes where there's maybe um you're going a little bit off the wall, getting a little bonkers, and the one that kind of stands out to me, and it's not the it's not the greatest Deep Space Nine episode, but it's not exactly like hard to watch. They're doing some interesting things there. Um, it's a, it's a little wacko. Maybe people will disagree with me, but um, it you know, if wishes were horses, you know, with Rumpelstiltskin, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like, uh, it's just bonkers, you know, and I don't mind it. Like, I I think the worst part of star trek is when you get the real dull episodes where it just feels like just like such a slog to sit through something like this was not a slog it wasn't great um if wishes were horses i mean it wasn't great but it, it wasn't a slog either where you know kind of people's imaginations are being manifested aboard the aboard the station so you get like baseball players from like the 20 the late 21st century you know visiting deep space nine you know like those are the kinds of like kind of wacky things that kind of jump out to me where it's like at least you're doing something a little bit different even if it doesn't quite work yeah like i think of an episode like from season one tng with the like elderly admiral who's like getting younger uh and like that episode so much of it is driven by that character's journey that it's really strange and yes the tng crew have to go up against him but it, he really does like take over the episode um so that jumps to mind. Also, like when you watch like Outrageous Okona, like how much of that episode is just directed by Okona's story? That's also kind of odd. But I feel like those strike a better balance than this one, which really does kind of like, I mean, it gives the TNG crew things to do. But when you go down the list, like who accomplishes anything? Because Deanna is the counselor. In theory, this is a important episode for her because it allows us to see her strengths. But, like, does Deanna really accomplish much as a counselor? Well, the reason I made reference to, you know, stuffing my face with chocolate is because all she was doing was just, like, she's getting, like, hot chocolate, please. Chocolate cake, please. And so um, I'm not even really answering your question more so than just commenting, yeah. you know, like how <laughs> <Yeah>. much <laughs> chocolate uh, she was consuming, which, hey, if I had those replicator systems and, like, everything was zero calories, of course I'd be doing that myself. But, um, like... It also, okay, the other thing is it actually doesn't serve Deanna's character very well because Guinan comes in and it seems as if she's much mm -hmm. better at working with whatever Clara is going through, you know? And Deanna's doing the completely logical thing. Um, I'm sure what she was trained to do, you know, way back in her academy days in terms of, like, counseling and all that. But the show shows us that Guinan's far more effective at getting through to Clara and making her feel... Like, she's not, like, kind of, like, uh, crazy or anything like that. Yeah, like, Deanna's basically just, like, trying to help the kid along. I mean, I like the moment where Deanna's, like, talking about the ceramics class, and then she says, can Isabella come? And she's like, 
no, just just you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think like something like that is is very capable. But ultimately, like what Deanne is trying to counsel this kid for is not a thing that. <laughs> It falls under her specialty, which is like aliens that are inhabiting imaginary friend bodies. Like that's not something that Deanna can solve with therapy. And it goes for Guinan as well, because Guinan talks about, you know, her Tarkasian razor beast imaginary friend and all that sort of thing and how you need to hold on to that. That's very nice, but that's also not relevant to what Claire is going through. The <laughs> the other thing that kind of, okay, I, I can totally do some mind canon around why this happened, but like Deanna not being able to sense Isabella's presence at all, that mm. kind of like popped out to me as a bit of a, a nitpick there because clearly Isabella has strong emotions. So the fact that they're, they're not manifesting in a way, she's a bit of a non-corporeal being taking on some sort of corporeal form. I get it, but you would think just based on how kind of the, the in-universe rules of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deanna's powers, not always consistent, but this seems as if a bit of a, a, a misfire here. Yeah, like I thought the same thing. Like Deanna, it, you could have made this a Deanna Troy, you know, episode and had her have that insight, like realize initially that, okay, like my counseling techniques are what you would do in a situation where this was a normal day-to-day -day event versus this has now changed and I need to switch tracks to help this kid out. It's just weird that like they, it's not like Troy has like an abundance of episodes to herself. You'd think like this one, they go, you know what? Just make it a Troy episode. That'll work. That'll work just fine. So this episode, we, we both agree, doesn't really serve Troy's character very well. Um, among the, other main characters okay I, I i think she of the main characters she's kind of the focus who's number two uh for this episode among the main characters okay um hmm of the main, it's definitely not Riker, who mostly just smiles to himself much of this episode uh it's not Worf, who just kind of bumps into clara and doesn't do much else it's not beverly so i guess it's between jordy and picard picard <sighs> He listens to people's advice. I mean, Data did get to look at uh, clouds and identify bunny rabbits. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely not Data either. I mean, is it Guinan? It's probably Guinan next, right? Well, she's not a main character, but like, I think that no. out of all the other characters, I would say it's after Troy, it's probably Guinan who's served best uh, by the, the characters like, like we see, you know, quite a lot on Next Generation. And then it's just yeah. weird how Picard just comes out of nowhere, as I said before, is kind of a pinch hitter at the very end of the episode where you're like kind of, I don't know, <laughs> I, I don't want to keep like ripping on like Star Trek Picard, but you kind of, it was nice to see him just come in and realize how easy it was for him way back in the day, like 30 years ago, he could just save kind of a, a moment at least with like a, some... It, maybe it's a, a speech that doesn't have much substance to it, but at least kind of a a, a performance that uh, has some substance to it. And uh, um, just despite the, the the vacuous, glib nature of that uh, speech that he gave, um, it worked on Isabella just as well as it uh, worked on me. I just wrote down that Picard's come a long way when it comes to talking about children, in contrast to the earlier seasons of that show. Was this episode, I think this one was after Disaster. If I recall oh, yeah. correctly, um, disaster, of course, is when he's stuck in the turbo lift with like the kids and uh, I think he break breaks his ankle or something. Um, maybe that was kind of a, a good learning experience for him. Is it after Rascals or before? 
Um. So it. Okay. So. Rascals. I think was early season five because Keiko and O'Brien were definitely still around. So I believe yep. this is after Rascals. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that journey Picard had being young again uh, gave him insight into what it's like to be, you know, a child again. Who, who knows? Like maybe there's some uh, non-canon stuff we can fill in there that makes uh, sense as to this kind of gibberish speech he gives at the end. I, I can go with that. I, I did have a note to myself, though. Star Trek likes going to these, like, kind of kid-driven episodes every now and again. How many of them have actually worked? Because when I think of, say, for example, the original series, you know, you have And the Children Shall Lead and Miri. Those are in no way the best episodes of that series. TNG's pretty bumpy as well. And a lot of the, you know, Borg Child stuff in Voyager's a little bumpy. Naomi Wildman, I mean, no offense to Trevis and Flotter, but not one of my favorite episodes either. Um, it's something they go to, but like, when has it really clicked? When has it clicked in television, uh, as a whole, like just in the medium as a whole? Yeah. Like, I don't think it's generally, it, it always feel, unless you're watching like a, a sitcom in which, you know, the kids are built into it. Even then it, it's always a little bit spotty, but like, uh, the performances and maybe, you know, sometimes you get that cute kid when uh, they're they're like five as the performer. And then, you know, as happens to everybody, uh, by the time they hit like, uh, you know, 13, 14, uh, going through those awkward phases, it doesn't necessarily work the same way as it did uh, way mm. back when. So I, I just think it, it's always inconsistent in television. Um, I'll say that. Okay. Kim, have you seen um, Anatomy of a Fall yet? I have not yet. No. The uh, the film? Yeah. There's just like, I, I there's a... Uh, uh, a child performance there and much of the movie kind of hinges on whether or not this this uh child actor could pull things off and and i think with a film i think there, there's a much better batting average in terms of being able to kind of secure that child actor that yeah. you need to make the movie work whereas kids like man cam like they, they uh, uh, on this episode they had limited hours to film the kids they had to cast them pretty quickly versus what you could do in a film so in terms of star trek going down that well i don't know um i like the kid stuff in uh star trek 2009 where uh you know uh young picard or sorry young kirk drives his stepdad's car off the ravine into the uh into the reservoir there um i like my the, name uh, the... is james tiberius kirk <laughs> I like the uh, <laughs> I like the the bullies uh, the the Vulcan bullies you know and that yeah. um, uh, I don't know man it's, it, it 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 it's tough in terms of what Star Trek can actually accomplish in terms of kids yeah because uh, was the kid in Hero Worship decent uh, it's been a while since I watched that episode of you know the kid that uh, is uh, kind of uh, mirroring himself from off Data yeah I think the kid benefited from the fact that he just needed to do a very stiff performance. If he's, you know, em trying to emulate data in that situation, um, I go back to the kid from Suddenly Human, in which they find like a uh, a human who is raised by aliens, and after his parents were killed in an attack, and he's more uh, like a young teenager at that point. It wasn't a great script, anyways, and I don't know if the child actor really elevated what was already kind of a meh script at that point. I, I guess maybe the, the, the easiest thing to do is like go look at Deep Space Nine and, and point at Sirach Lofton, who they didn't try to yeah. build 
huge episodes on the shoulders of what was like kind of a 14 or 15 year old you know they he was there as a side character he was there to help you know deepen ben as opposed to like hey um 14 year old kids uh the structural integrity of the station relies on you figuring out this problem and saving the day you know and so i think that's what just letting like jake be a kid was like kind of the best decision i think they ever did with regards to deep space nine and they let him grow into a man and they could give kind of heavier stuff to him you know something like the muse doesn't necessarily work but look at an episode like the visitor for example no, that's a yeah, great one there, the visitor. And I think one thing too is like whether you're talking about, you know, Jake or you're looking at um the kid from Hero Worship and maybe some other good examples, um, it's often a case where it is a young, you know, child actor working closely with another adult. So Brent Spiner in Hero Worship, Jake is obviously, you know, Sirock Lofton is working with um Avery Brooks consistently. And they often say the key to great child performances is A, a director, but B, also the adult they're working with. And I look at this episode, and I actually think Noli Thornton is actually pretty good as Clara. It was not like a grading child performance in any way, shape, or form. But this kid is carrying the episode in many ways and is not working consistently with one co-star. She's bouncing between Guinan and, you know, bumping into Worf and, you know, uh, Deanna Troy. So, like, it's not even like she's getting to work with an established member of the team to carry her performance from beginning to end. She's kind of all over the place. I, I You know, I, I'm glad that you brought her up because I think this could could have gone very wrong if they did not find the right actress to be able to kind of, like, balance everything that was going on in this episode. So, yeah. Um, overall, Cam. Imaginary friend. Where does this... Nece- okay, we've kind of talked about the legacy. What do you think the legacy is if you bring this episode up yeah. to kind of the average fan out there? I don't think it's one that they, like, uh, start, you know, ridiculing, like, masks or mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, it's not one like that. It doesn't have, like, the vitriol of, like, a code of honor, which is just a horrible episode. Um, it's one I think people don't care for. But they also kind of have a, they're a little amused by it. Like, I could totally see, maybe I've seen it, I could totally see someone showing up in cosplay, for example, as Isabella, and a lot of people really liking the cosplay, and thinking like, oh, that's really fun, that's really cool. I could see someone showing up in like the um, <laughs> ceramics smock outfit uh, <laughs> that we see in sure. this episode, and people thinking that's really fun. Um, so I think like there's kind of like a winking acknowledgement that's a bad episode, but it's one that people probably give a few extra points to just because it falls in such a strong period for the show. Like that's when TNG is really strong in season five. So it's kind of like an outlier episode that's more odd. Well, you've inspired me. Next time I see somebody uh, dressed as Alexander at a convention, I'm going to start tossing clay at that kid's head. Um... (laughs) Okay, I just double-checked. Uh, Rascals actually aired after this one here. So uh, maybe uh, this one helped prepare Picard for seeing things from a child's perspective. Okay. And one thing I noted, too, is like Alexander could have cracked this case wide open. He was a witness to being hit by clay by nobody. True. Had he said that that clay had uh, flown out of nowhere, he could have pointed the finger in Isabella's direction 
a lot quicker. And uh, ultimately, it's once again, Alexander lets us all down. (laughs) (laughs) All right, sir. Okay. This is a... a it's a bit of a strange one. Um, ultimately, I just I don't think it's like a hated episode of Star Trek. It might not be well revered, but I don't know. It's it's kind of fun that we can get these little um, outliers here and there. Oh yeah, and Brandon Braga is actually like a big fan of it. He's like, I really think we cracked that one. I'm very proud of that one. He, I think he said it was his favorite episode he worked on in season five, but then he also acknowledged that no one likes it. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, maybe he can pitch uh, Paramount for uh, a Star Trek Isabella spinoff, Back to the Nebula. I would have to go through his writing credits in season five and see what other episodes he worked (laughs) on, because maybe I would be outraged by that statement if I had have gone through and seen like a lot of gems. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So on that note, I think our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod and let us know your thoughts on Imaginary Friend. We would love to hear them. Tyler, what are we doing next week? Cam, we'll be back next week with uh, Star Trek What Ifs. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun uh, pitching ideas to each other. Uh, It could be anything from what happens on screen to what maybe happened behind the scenes as well. But um, a lot of what ifs that could have change the direction of Star Trek as we know it here in terms of both uh, storytelling as well as maybe the quality of some uh, some, some series. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like fun. I can't wait for that. And of course, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam B as in Velocity Dropping by the Enterprise Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P as in Pottery Class Gone Wrong. O-R-T. <laughs> O-N. So much better. So much better than mine. (laughs) Okay. So until next time, the arena is closed. (laughs) Jellico! Jellico!